Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sam Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, we're joined by another special guest. So Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh God, I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, my name is Nathan Brown. I used to be the editor of Edge magazine, but I'm all right now. <laughs> yeah sorry nathan i realized i did put an intro line in the plan that i didn't use um, immediately and that must have thrown you off so apologies for that um, it did it, it did a little bit my word oh it was great it was a great bit of improvised um introduction i loved it well yeah. let's hope that that has, uh, has set the tone i should also say sorry these days i am a video game consultant um and i write the modestly popular uh substack newsletter hit points hitpoints.substack.com yeah we're very uh, grateful to have you on, Nathan. You've uh, written or mentioned our podcast in the past, and we think that sent a few patrons our way. So it uh, seemed only fair to get you on and repay the favour. Um, <laughs> so, we, yeah, much appreciated. How are things going with you at the moment? Are, are things good work-wise, home-wise? Yes, all, like, all good. It's um, It's been a really busy couple of months, actually. The consulting side of, uh, of my work has just kind of picked up after a rather sort of worrying start to the year but yeah it's um it's been like really busy really full on uh the newsletter is growing it's got to that point we'll talk about this later i guess but yeah it's like it's kind of passively growing now uh that i just kind of get signups so i don't know where they're coming from it's like okay cool oh, nice um so yeah it's uh it, it's all good and yeah there's like at least uh i i, I probably like half a dozen readers have, have have said like you should go on the back page i was like well they should ask me <laughs> uh, and, and now that you've reached the bottom of the barrel of, uh, oh, of magazine guests, then uh, I'm, I'm happy not. to be here. Not at all. We're trying. We're trying to collect all of the edge editors. Basically, that's like the the slow ongoing goal. And what we see is building up to the the great guests. It's not kind of like uh, working our way down, Nathan. We're very very happy to have you. Oh, that's um, a much better way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, this is basically just us trying to get into having Tony Mott on the podcast. So, um, you know, that's all. That's all this is. Is basically, is a, a, basically wow. collecting the different bits of the Triforce, and so we have the power to. Well, actually, no, that would make Tony Ganondorf, and we don't want to kill him. Um, no, it's not. not quite, I'd say that actually, the rest of us are more like Horcruxes. Uh, we're, like all, <laughs> we're all kind of like fragments of Tony's soul, uh, <laughs> and and the only way you get him is if you is if you manage to track down like Margaret and Joao and all the rest of them. <laughs> I wish that was a less cursed reference in 2022, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, sorry. There we go. I take, that, take all that back. Can we edit that out? <laughs> I think I have to keep it because it's funny. Sorry about that. That's the, just the rules. I mean, you know, hey, we can talk about it off air. Um, so, Nathan, I guess to start with your personal history of video games, like, what did you? Uh, what were you interested in growing up? When did you first encounter video games? So, uh, there's there's this really like weird almost kind of dreamlike memory of an atari 2600 which i i guess just from like the timeline must have been the first thing i played but it's it's like it's yeah it's really weird like i have this kind of mental image of playing it in a room but i don't recognize the room and it, yeah so I, I don't really count that but i remember Ooh. like combat and um et and pitfall and stuff like that um, and I remember a rental store that had them like in Bath when I was growing up, and we used to rent games. But I, but I, I think I must have just been too like too young for it. First one that I was like really conscious of um, was a family camping holiday. I would I'd guess in like 1984, 1985, something like that. So I would have been six or seven. That had um, like an on-site arcade, and it pissed it down with rain for the like the whole week that we were there. And so all there really was to do was go in this arcade. And they had that sit the sit down Star Wars uh 
cabinet, they huh. had um, a game called Karate Champ, which I, I I kind of like. I hold Karate Champ as like the first the first game I ever played or I ever remember playing, um, and it, it was like this um, two no one on one fighting game that was played with just joysticks. You had two joysticks and um, rather than the characters moving back and forth, they like stood like a couple of feet apart and then a, um, the round would start and you'd basically choose one move dependent on which direction you push the stick, each of the sticks in. So like up and up on one and down on the other would do something and vice versa and all of that. And I think it was probably really shit. <laughs> uh, and I was certainly like terrible at it. But yeah, that, that um, when you kind of, when I look back uh, on it and think about how much of my career i guess uh we'll get onto this later but that, but i do owe to fighting games in a, in a fairly like significant way that that should be like one of the one of the first things um i remembered playing and after that it was all kind of fairly traditional just based on growing up in the in the 80s really we had a spectrum i had a friend who had a commodore 64 we pretended not to like each other um and then you know the nes happened and that and, and that was me done basically as soon, as soon as the nes came into the house it was I was a Nintendo fan, uh, and oh. and on it continued. Would you say that games were your primary passion in life, or did you have other interests at the time that were that would kind of, I guess, like games would fluctuate as the thing you were paying the most attention to? I think like games have always flowed in and out of my life. There've been times when I've been more into them than not, but yeah, I think like because just doing the maths on it, yeah, I must have been like six um, at the point at which I, I played those arcade games. So it's a pretty formative age as i know as someone who's who's got kids as well like you know you just you get so easily inspired and you just sponge things up um and that that definitely set me down a path i liked football as well um but i didn't make a career out of playing football so it <laughs> probably right. speaks probably tells its own we don't, story we don't really really understand sports to the point that we have a sports channel on our back page discord that neither of us go in i have no <laughs> idea what's going in there but it's like the sort of absolute no man's land for us we think they yeah. could be plotting to blow up like Parliament in there, and we'd never know because we wouldn't dare look. Essentially, so um, yeah, that's who you're dealing with here. Um, <laughs> do your um, do your kids now play games? So my youngest is uh, only just starting to. He's four, uh, four and a right. bit. He's like only just discovering like iPads, which is honestly like just the most incredible like way in to games. I think because that you know until you see a kid playing with it, you don't realise like just how like immediately intuitive touchscreens are. I think. Obviously Having we... their brain melted by Super Hexagon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that'll come later. There's like CBB's CBB's Playtime Island oh, yeah. at the moment, but it's a you know it's a slope, right? Um, yeah. But but my eldest, yeah, I mean he um, he would sit and watch me play stuff from from the time he was about five or six. Um, I kind of rather I don't know. It was like talk about like dad trying to imprint stuff onto his son, but like he sat and watched me play like pretty much every 3d mario game um, right just like we, we just do like half an hour a day or something and i just do a couple of levels on, on galaxy or 3d world or, or whatever and and if, eventually i think we got him a switch light uh, a couple of years ago and you know that is that's like his screen time he's fucking obsessed with pokemon and it drives me insane oh well at least he's a nintendo kid that's good yes oh god yeah that was the only way that was ever ever gonna go but um <laughs> yeah most of most of his like school friends have got switches as well like that seems it seems to be oh, yeah. like the primary so that you know i feel pretty good about the generation coming through man like you know they they're being they're being raised right i think you're just saying why do you have to play pokemon and not splatoon or arms you know that's uh, yeah 
yeah but um hey maybe uh i'm sure one day that will change well um, he can't play arms can he because because uh he's got a switch light so, oh yeah, yeah of course can't take the controls off yeah. Don't get me st- don't get me started on that shit. But um, yeah, like so he still like he still has to borrow my switch to if like he loves um like Ring Fit Adventure, uh, and when we got Switch Sports as well, it's just all this stuff that Switch Lite just you know can't do barely it's like, supports. It's like that um, Twilight Zone episode where the guy with all the books and then he breaks his glasses. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but uh, I'll take. I'll take oh, neither have I. I've just seen it <laughs> memed. I'm pretending that I know something from memes. So I think it's good, Nathan, because you establish a switch kind of power hierarchy in your household. <laughs> just so you know, he, he, there's like there are some things that you know you are the gatekeeper of. That's probably not a bad thing to oh, sure. to maintain. Um, okay, did, got sorry. off topic there, but um, so you know it's fine. You're a, so you're a Nintendo kid. Like, um, do you remember what I suppose? What were the kind of like pivotal moments for you between like you know being a kid and being an adult in terms of? games you got properly obsessed with uh, uh street fighter 2 the end pretty much um i i think like from the the first moment i saw it in i think it must have been me uh, mean machines like and i was just I, w- I was just kind of like immediately obsessed with it just the fact that i don't know i think you guys were a little bit younger than me but back then like it was like wow what big sprites this video game has and like anything <laughs> right. with, with, with big sprites was super like final fight it's like Whoa, look at them Look at, look at how much size they take up. It's incredible. So, like, from the moment I saw the first screens and everything I read about it, it sounded amazing. Um, I, like, went to this incredibly smoky um, bath arcade uh, that, as long bath as Bath had an arcade? Oh, mate. It had, like, so it had loads. And I can, I can tell you pretty much where it is, but it, it would be a bit in the weeds for your non-bath nope. resident. Where was it? <laughs> so, um, there, so if, like, literally about just around the corner from, from the future offices, it used to, it was a carpet shop afterwards next to a pub, um, kind of opposite McDonald's, like the back of oh, McDonald's. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and there's just this little like little door at the um, with a little staircase going up to it. You can still see now if you just come out of the future uh, thing uh, building, turn right. First thing you see is Quasar, which was used to be a laser tag place. And I was going to come onto that, but I played like Street Fighter in the amazing arcade that they had there, like uh, twice a week for about four years. Just used to go <laughs> in and like you know play Street Fighter and stuff. And then yeah, if you keep going like that way, there's just this like little glass door. Uh, and a set of uh, stairs going up, a set of stairs going down, and they have fruities upstairs, and they had um, uh, arcade games in in the basement. Um, oh. And uh, like I, well, I remember going down there and like playing Street Fighter Two, and I'd read, oh, uh, Zangief's spinning power driver is the like hard is the like hardest hitting move in the game. So I was like, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was like, this, how hard can it be? And so I chose like the least mobile character. Uh, who couldn't really do anything who you had to get really really close to the opponent and do like the sort of hardest move to perform in the game on and I I, I mean like I died very very quickly I lost horribly but I I still like persisted Um, and then like I I, people at school played it I uh, what did I I got an import Super Famicom um, so that I could play it in like at 60 hertz Uh, I paid 65 quid for the uh, the (laughs) For the import uh, U.S. import version of it, um, that was a U.S. SNES I had actually. Sorry, not a not a Super Famicom, the um, like the Palmer Violets one. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Which I'm a like weirdly staunch defender of. It's like the ugliest thing, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
That is quite a, quite a take, <laughs> I must say. That's it. It's like my, my, my goal with this this evening, uh, Sam, is to just like cancel myself. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, st- I stand the US SNES for oh. sure. Did you pay much attention to games media growing up? It sounds like you were reading quite a lot about games, but what was your relationship with games yeah, media man, at the time? Uh, I got a subscription to your Sinclair magazine for, I think, either my seventh or eighth birthday. Nice. Um, <laughs> wow. Which is like, you talk about credentials. Um, and I used to, like, even, I remember, like, summer holidays kind of walking down, like, the hill from, I lived in a, a, an area above called um, Widcombe, which is, like, a really short hop into town. I mean, everything's a short mm-hmm. hop into town in, uh, in Bath anyway. But, yeah, like, on summer holidays, like, during my teens, I would just walk down to town on my own, cut through boots, because they used to have, like, snezzes in there that you could play Mario World on. So I'd, like, cut through <laughs> and play that and then go out there and then go into John Menzies. And I would literally do that every day just to go and see, like, what new mags had come out that day. And and I would buy one. I never, apart from that Your Sinclair one, I never subscribed to anything because I loved so much that feeling of, like, going into a shop, seeing, like, a familiar logo up there and then, like, brand new artwork. Mm. um and, and and just being like oh man it's the new super play the new like whatever um i once went on a family holiday to i think ibiza and and all i took in my hand luggage was a game boy and a pile of mean machines back issues <laughs> 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 so it, like it was always it was always there and i only had the, like the vaguest inclination that uh that these things were made in bath um that like it was right on my doorstep um huh. Like it just it just never even occurred to me, and I think like the play I remember buying Superplay issue one from a newsagent in the centre of Bath that I'm pretty sure was like like maybe 200 yards from where it was made. Right. Uh, but but it just ne- like mm. never registered. Maybe it, it you was... played some of the journalists in the arcade. Oh my god. Maybe you cr- cross swords with a young Tony Mott. <laughs> Do you know, it's it's fascinating actually. Like Tony and I would talk often, and it, it's so obviously because I worked to him but we, we would talk often about like those days and we were definitely like within each other's orbit many right. many years before we knew each other because all the edge lot were out like raving all the time like kind of late <laughs> 90s when I was coming home from from London and, and going out and you know all, all around Bath and stuff Tony knew this place I got my US SNES from was a um, like a kind of import and, and the Street Fighter as well actually it was uh, an import shop called DMC Consoles which used to be on a Paragon um huh. and i mentioned it to to tony once it's only there for like two years um and he was like yeah i know that and he tony had grown up in street i think it was uh so he like and he used to come over with um i think it was terry stokes like he said they right. used to they used to make like a pilgrimage over so that they could go there and buy import games because it was the nearest oh, wow. import nearest import shop to them and it's just like wow man like despite <laughs> the fact that and I, but like tony's career in this in this stuff is like 20 years longer than mine i think something like that right like it's, it's yeah it's pretty crazy so when did you first read a copy of edge nathan i kind of sort of hinted at it a, a bit there but when i moved up to london after i left school for a very short stint at university but stayed in london for a bit and i think like that was the one sort of time in my life where i was a little bit less engaged with with games um and that was also the the age at which i should have been interested in edge right that kind of like turning eight like 18 and and kind of mm. you know feeling a bit more adult and and grown up about these things but i was kind of i was still buying games and still playing them but uh, my money was going on like records and taxis <laughs> uh, home before the tube started uh, after going out clubbing and stuff like that so i don't think i i, I first read an issue of edge until about 2002 2003 
um right, and okay. it was my my brother that uh that put me onto it he was working for he's a couple of years older than me um was working for like an it company and they used to just get it like they had an office subscription and once the once the boss had read it damien just brought it home and then he read it and then he gave it to me um <laughs> and that was I, I was by that point like i think the gamecube had just come out so it was that kind of era of like like the wind waker cover and you know mm. i think like um the the moment that I read it. I suddenly was like, "Oh, hang on a minute! Superplay's gone, and like N64 magazine is gone." And I thought that that you know, I thought that part of my life was over in a way. But this is like this is just where my thinking is. Like I don't know. I just felt this very like powerful connection to it. Um, and yeah. I like for years just had a great big stack of them uh, in the in the bathroom. <laughs> this is <a> <laughs> like before smartphones, obviously. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was, it was through my brother. And I think that like the main thing was um, like, he, he also put me onto res, like, which is a sort of former clubber, like, oh my, it's like, it's, it's drugs and loud music, the game. How excellent. <laughs> like, where did you, where did you find out about this? And he was like, oh, it's in this, um, it's in this magazine. And so, yeah, that's kind of, kind of where it, where it all, came from but yeah i was a little bit of a latecomer i'm not sure i ever admitted that actually i'm not sure tony ever asked me how long i'd been reading oh, um that's quite but... a st- i always think of that as the sort of strict period of edge like that that's where when the reputation for like some quite harsh scores came from particularly that period yeah for sure for sure but th- there was there was a lot um there was a lot to love there as well it was when um nagoshi had his had his column um oh, God, and... yeah <laughs> although although i later found out that that was not not much of a Nagoshi column, like he would fax oh, over. Really? Uh, so yeah, he'd fax. I think it was Steve Curran, uh, used to be edit- editor at large, and I, I remember talking to him at a, a, a conference, like pretty much like one of my first trips over overseas um, for Edge, and I was like, you know, oh man, I used to love Nagoshi's column, and he was like, thank you, I wrote it most time. Like, oh, come on, no, you didn't. No. But he, he would he would fax like over. I think like sometimes it was pretty much there sometimes it was actually very good and just needed like you know because how do you get like a non-native speaker to hit like a rigid page word count right you're gonna have to like you know you're gonna have to (laughs) be quite uh you know heavy with the brush uh on on something like that but yeah that was that's steve current just destroying destroying my dreams nice (laughs) the other thing is that you've you've um interviewed negotiate before right nathan and does does he seem like the kind of guy who would just like write a column to a word count and send it with no fuss does he seem like that kind of guy to you based on what, i mean not by the time i met him no but he was like just incredibly <laughs> important like you know he was he was treated with that like real reverence actually by by the people around him at, at sega and in that kind of way that you know it's like how much of this is respect and how much of this is just fear because you know that right. the guy is connected <laughs> um but uh yeah but i, I think like <laughs> He, I got him to talk a little bit about his old days and, and his party days and stuff, which was pretty much like when he was writing the Edge column as well. Um, and he, he just really did sound like a kind of a, a bon viveur and a storyteller. And so I could totally like see him like being up for it and, and being interested in it. But no, not like, sorry, Nagoshi sound, but like, you know, this is 50 words short. And also we think we could, you could do with another run at the ending. Like, could you get this back <laughs> right. to me by 10 o'clock in the morning? Like, you know, it's not, <laughs> not really going to happen. Do you think that that particular era of Edge uh, sort of, was that the kind of era that you saw as 
I suppose what I'm trying to ask is like how important was that era of edge to you and how much did it inform how you would shape edge later on? Oh, not very actually, because I think it it felt so distant by the time I got there, even though it wasn't like that. I don't know what we're looking at, like six or seven years later, I guess, by the time I joined. But it was a completely different team. And I, I think like one of the, as you guys will know, right, a, a magazine is always the product of the people that are making it at the time mm. um and, and an expression of their of their values and and all the rest of it and i think because i had no no professional connection to that i latched on instead to the version that i did have a professional connection to um which was the the, the team at the time that i joined sure that makes sense um so i'm curious to hear what your career was like before you were hired by edge um nathan because I was looking up, I was doing my deep research on your LinkedIn profile, and um, there's not much evidence of you existing before 2012 on there. Um, so I was curious, like, what was the kind of, what was your professional life like before you came to Games Media? Were you just raving 24 <laughs> 7. Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Just like barefoot. I went to Goa and found myself. No, I, I, I did none of that. Um, so I, like, I went to university very briefly um, and uh, then, like, left, and but wanted to stay in London. Like my um my wife then girlfriend was in London as well and we were going to move in together and stuff so it was basically like right I have to get a job so I walked into a temping agency they did me a typing test um and said right you're fast enough to go and do this data entry job at Barclays Bank I was like sure like whatever I'll do this for a little while like it's fine um and I didn't re- obviously I mean you never realize the importance of these these sort of sliding doors decisions that you make but like that kind of set the tone for what I did for the next eight nine ten years it was banking it was finance um I worked for uh like an Iranian bank and a Qatari bank and an American bank and um uh I worked for a a small language school towards the end none of it was good particularly none of it was awful either i you know i met a lot of cool people i um i, I made a lot of pe- uh, friends with people that i'm still friends with today i learned a lot and i think actually the most important thing i learned was that this is not what i want to do mm-hmm. and i want to do something that's a bit more um fulfilling the only sort of the, sh- the very brief um like departure from all that was in i think the year 2000 after i left barclays I went and worked for a uh, a tech company for a year, but they had an editorial. They were like a yeah, they were, they were a tech startup effectively, but they also had this like editorial component, and it was all based around like clubbing and uh, dance music and stuff. Uh, and I went and joined them first as a listings editor, which was basically like um, data entry again, but but writing up like club nights and which DJs were playing at which venue and all that sort of stuff. And then after about six months of that, I moved up to music editor, where I spent like nine months or a year kind of going out clubbing twice a week um, and getting sent records and reviewing them and interviewing DJs and musicians and stuff. How do you review a club? In the same way, like, you review anything else. You kind of, you talk about the the, the atmosphere, right. uh, the DJs, like, um, what the, yeah, what the crowd were like. But you're part of it. Like, you're part of, you're part of the reason the night is either good or bad, because you're part of the crowd, and that's part of it. That's true. That is absolutely true. That 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 company was hilarious, man. Unfortunately, they, they lost their funding uh, after 9/11, like, as so many other um, tech companies Ooh. did uh, amidst that bubble burst. But it was what they did. Was, they were called Spaced. Uh, this was before the <laughs> before the Edgar Wright right. sitcom. <laughs> and 
what they did was uh, they had these huge machines, like kind of bit like imagine a big old vending machine that they put in, they installed in clubs all around the around the country. And when you and a bunch of friends were the worst for wear, uh, you could go there and put like a pound in, uh, and then pose for a photograph. And inside was a camera and an email client, and you could email it to like five friends, um, <laughs> and uh add little like text and and stuff like that and it kind of like watermarked it with where you were and when you took it and it was like wow (laughs) like that was only i say only it was quite a long time ago but that was only like 20 years ago and you think how kind of how far we've come that this entire like quite quite generously funded company honestly like it was you know funded by funded by ubm and they had like millions in funding to like go and invent cameras and emails it was, uh, yeah, it's quite it was it's quite something that's cool so um uh, nathan should we take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about edge in more detail yes absolutely Welcome back to the podcast. So we're now going to grill Nathan about his Edge days. So Nathan, you were hired as online editor for Edge in 2012, but you told me that before that you were freelancing for them. So what was your journey like in in becoming a member of staff on Edge? So there are two types of like origin stories I found with people who work in games like or around games. There's the plan, like I decided that I wanted to do this and I specifically made a plan in order to do it and I executed on it and I made it. And then there's like sort of dumb fucking luck and happenstance and mine was like absolutely the latter like coming off uh finance career and getting i think you work in finance you get made redundant a lot um and and like by the the I think it was the second time it happened to me, the third time it happened to my wife. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I had a bit of like redundancy package. I was like, I'm going to retrain. I'm going to retrain as a journalist and, 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 you know, off we go. And it never occurred to me in a million years that I could get a job writing about games or at least not writing about games for Edge because I was like, oh, you can't, you don't just, one does not simply walk straight into Edge, right? You've got to, <laughs> yeah. like, you have to prove yourself, like, somehow, I don't know how, but, I, you know, I don't have time for that. I was, like, 32 by this point. So I, I decided to train in, like, newspapers rather than magazine uh, journalism, and uh, it was more like news and sport than games. But there wasn't really any work around, and... Uh, I was getting a bit worried. The money was running out as well, like my redundancy stuff. Uh, and so I asked my friend, uh, Chris Schilling. Of course. Hi, Chris. Oh, so you knew Chris from, from uh, the before times. Oh, like Chris was at my wedding um, oh, in, wow. in 2007. Yeah, like he was, uh, we met on the, the Games Radar Forum. <laughs> Uh, I'm imba- I'm embarrassed to say. Um, That's not embarrassing. Like a... That's nice. Well, there, no, there's a few people around from that era actually. Matt Pellet, who was yeah. um, used to be editor of Official PlayStation, uh, he was um, he was from there. Sorry to anybody, I'm forgetting, but uh, there's there's certainly a few a few of us there. Anyway, I kind of like I went to Chris. I was like, look, mate, I'm struggling a little bit. Like, could you? I think I'm going to try 
games i've done a, a couple of bits for like sort of chris used to run like a little passion project fan site called press start uh, a friend of mine at the time was also working for a website called ink gamers which i think still exists mm-hmm. um and i'd written a couple of bits for them like done a couple of reviews and stuff and i was like all right mate i'm, I'm just going to try games because it feels like a, it might work and he gave me like i don't know eight nine ten email addresses and i just shot out like speculative pitches um to people but i didn't send them to all of them i left one off the list because one of them was alex wiltshire uh of edge and i was like there's no point this is just <laughs> like forget it uh so i sent out the other nine emails they all either ignored me or came back with a polite no sorry not looking for anybody at the moment or we're working on similar things already internally and then eventually i was like all right fuck it whatever <laughs> emailed alex uh, i was like hi alex um introduced myself explained that i trained in news and was like looking to to write about games and he replied to me uh, an hour later um and said where are you based and i said bristol and he said could you come and meet me for a coffee and i think two days later uh i was having a coffee with him uh in cafe nero in bath that was on like a tuesday wednesday i had to do a writing test did that and then i started the following monday wow. um as a as a, as a freelance uh, freelance news reporter and i found out later that what had happened was um david valjallo uh yeah. who at the time was staff writer had been like seconded off he's hired as staff writer for the mag he'd been seconded off to the edge website to write news and he'd been doing it for six months and he was just bored out of his mind right, yeah. which as someone who then wrote the news for a website like i, I kind of understand and he was like this, you know and he literally that morning had taken alex to one side and just been like i can't do this anymore like i, I can't like you've got you've got to, you've got to get me off and alex was like okay well, oh my god what am i going to do what am i going to do and he sits down and then it's like oh there's a guy <laughs> there's a guy who says he writes news and tony, wow. tony was like where is he oh he says he's in bristol <laughs> when's he available he says he can start straight away so you know talk about talk about dumb luck right um that was that was kind of how it happened so yeah like i I freelanced uh it was it was what future in those days would call freelance anyway but it was basically like you will be here uh monday to friday 9 30 to 5 30 um and we will pay you a daily rate and give you no benefits yeah um which you know was i think a lot of people's situation uh for probably longer than i had to endure it but yeah i did that for about 18 months and then alex uh had his own moment of I, I just hate the fucking internet. Please, can I make magazines again? <laughs> and negotiated his exit uh, back onto the mag. And then uh, they asked me to move up um, to online editor in, I guess, if my LinkedIn says 2012, Sam, then that's when it happened. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so joining the Edge team, I suppose, even if you were freelance technically um, at that time, did was there anything about the about working on Edge that surprised you as a, as a reader with a, a long history with the magazine? I mean, I think like the thing, the only thing that really got me originally was like, wow, these people are just like, like normal. Mm. (laughs) I I sort of assumed that they would be on a different, um, I don't know, like on on some sort of different plane of existence or certainly a different um, intellectual plane. Um, I think Craig Owens Owens was on a different intellectual plane, to be fair, but we got rid of him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, he, he sailed off to better pastures. Um, but yeah, I think I think that was the the first thing. But no, I, I like there wasn't anything that particularly surprised me. I guess, and this is going to seem absolutely insane compared to like what we're going to when you bear in mind what we're we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But I was surprised at how few people they had. 
uh, and how like small the team was. I was like, wow, you, you, wow, you guys like make a magazine every four weeks and there's only like 11 of you. Um, <laughs> and clearly I had no idea uh, what was, what was coming my way in the, in the years that followed. But, yeah. but no, I, you know, it, I, really, it was just, it was, I was awestruck really. Um, certainly early on, I remember my first day, like walking in and they had, they'd recently done that issue the for their 200th issue they did 200 covers um and they had at that time like a print of every single cover just plastered along the wall Mm. behind them and that was behind like tony and the art editors and i was sitting opposite tony at the time so every time i looked up i just saw 200 edges basically and i was like (laughs) wow this is me like first morning i walked in and just there on my desk for no reason at all was like a japanese boxed copy of majora's mask (laughs) i was like fuck it fuck i've made it but i haven't made it yet because i'm only freelance and stuff but it's like i'm here yeah you know like i'm actually doing it yeah i think we shared the same office i think we were in the same bit of the office to begin with i think edge were down because that was when there was like we shared the floor with pc gamer as well right yeah i think so uh i remember like you always had the end of the office yeah they insisted on the end and tony would always like fuck about with the lights yeah, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> much to everyone's uh everyone's chagrin yeah i've <laughs> <laughs> actually said that out loud um but yeah, like it was, you know, we 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 all fit in there at the time. I actually like briefly the, the team got so big that they didn't have room for me anymore, and I had to go and sit with Games Radar, um, <laughs> who at the time was the t- was the smallest team in the in the building. Like there was only four of them, I yeah. think, uh, and and a majority uh, team over in the over in the US. But I sat with them. They were good. They were good fun people for a bit, and then eventually Edge found room for me, um, and I moved back over. I was going to ask because uh, I can't remember when Street Fighter Four became a big thing, but you were definitely part of the office playing Street Fighter Four, right? I actually think I came in after it. So, okay. the, so Street Street Fighter Four itself was two thousand and nine, right? And uh, uh, Super was like early two thousand and ten. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, and so I came, I came in at the end, and by the, by that point, like everyone was playing FIFA pretty much. Oh, okay, yeah, that, um, that's, yeah, that tracks. <laughs> and that. There was yeah, and there, there wasn't much of a scene of it. But I'd hear like, like I remember Michael Gapper telling me about how the, one of the plasmas uh, plasma screens got the health bars burned into <laughs> because like so so much so much Street Fighter was um, yeah oh, was well, being being played. Oh, but my God, like you t- talk about Street Fighter, actually, it was uh, incredibly important. Uh, I think to me, like finding my feet and in, in edge and cementing myself. I remember having like a very early conversation with Alex um, Wiltshire, and he said. Um, make yourself indispensable. I was like, wow, that's like that's some career advice I'm going to take to the grave with me. Thank mm-hmm. you. And so it was about like finding a way in which I could um, offer something that they didn't already have, either on staff or, or among the freelance crew. Which like you know was pretty. There wasn't a lot, but there was this perception at the time that Edge wasn't uh, very good at fighting games. Right. Uh, they'd given. Street Fighter 3 Third Striker 6 and people were very upset about that I actually will like quite happily have the argument with you that Third Strike as much as I love it is absolutely an age 6 <laughs> um, but the the fact that I could write fighting games I mean the, like the first 
the first things I had in the mag, like I got my portfolio together when I left and looking back at it, it's like almost everything I did early on was either like news based uh, for the news section based on stuff I'd been writing about for the website or it was, oh, holy shit, who's going to review Tekken on the 3DS for us or Dead or Alive on the 3DS for us? Who's going to preview Skullgirls? And just like being being the guy that could do that Mm. um, was tremendously, tremendously helpful, I think. Um, I've said it a lot that you, you know, you, you kind of start as a specialist, as a game journalist and, and you end as a generalist because by the end you, you just have to, well, you've naturally encountered loads of stuff, um, but also you, you, you tend to get senior enough that you have to do a bit of everything yeah. or you have to be able to do a bit of everything. Yeah, that's true. So, Nathan, this is a quite a strange question for me to throw in that's not in the plan, but um, oh God. We have, <laughs> we've just not talked about uh, fighting games on this podcast at all, really, because it's not something that me and Matthew understand. Can you explain to me very briefly why Street Fighter is incredibly important? And Because um, <laughs> I don't compute it myself exactly, even though I know it, it lives adjacent to games like kind of Bayonetta, where I do understand the technical appeal of them. So... Can you explain to me very briefly why Street Fighter is good? I know that sounds ridiculous, but um, <laughs> can you? Oh, fucking hell, Sam. Uh, <laughs> I think we we might need to spin this out into like a an Excel feed. Honestly, yes. like get a couple get a couple of other other people in. Like it's a it's a pretty hard thing for me to articulate. Really, I think it's the way that it laid down so much of the language and so much of the the vocabulary that an entire genre now uses but does it in a way that has like never been bettered and i guess like you would you would point to something like dark souls right as as being an example of that like everything's a souls like now but nothing ever really comes as comes close to to the game that they're sort of kind of borrowing from so i think like that's that's the first thing the second thing is just that it all to me anyway it all feels natural there's a very obvious difference between pressing light punch and pressing hard punch like they connect they look like they hurt mm-hmm. even the special move motions kind of make sense there's a rhythm to combos there's yeah that i think was that certainly what made me fall in love with it in 1990 whatever it was um and i think it's kind of still like fundamental to to why i still love it now it also helps i, I think like it's one of the one of the only like genres of games that you don't need to understand. Like, I don't need to explain anything about this game to you, really. Like, it's pretty obvious. Two big sprites. Oh, big sprites again. <laughs> uh, hitting each other. Big health bars that get smaller. Big timer ticking down. Like, it, it's just, it just kind of, it makes sense. Mm. It's all very readable, I think. Um, uh, and until you get to like the mad anime fighting games that that just fill the screen with all kinds of shit and press and involve you pressing like a million inputs a, a minute or whatever um but yeah i've done a terrible job of uh, of articulating it was quite, i just love them sorry i am ba- i ambushed you with a dumbass question <laughs> um, <laughs> so i appreciate you uh, you trying on the spot um, mate it's good like that, that is like excellent uh, hit points prompting though thank you that's like, we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a couple of months time once i've had time to actually think about it okay great um, so back to our regularly scheduled questions. So um, in 2013, you transitioned to the magazine from the website, becoming games editor. How did that compare um, going from going to uh, print from online? I'm guessing you always wanted to make that leap. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the point at which I actually felt like I worked for Edge. You know, mm-hmm. um, like I'd but when I was on the website, I'd meet people at conferences or whatever, and they'd be like, "Oh, you work for Edge? Wow, that's cool." And I'd always go, "Yeah, but the website," because it was this sort of you know 
tamponing data. It's like, it, yes, it's cool. Yes, I, and I will like happily bask in the reflected coolness, but I'm not like really cool. Right. You know? <laughs> um, so it, it was the first time that, yeah, actually it felt like uh, like I'd always imagined it would be because obviously news is, especially news reporting and online stuff is very reactive. It's based on what's happening out there. It's based on, it's all very immediate and based on data and stuff like that, although we weren't actually looking at data too much then. Whereas the magazine was just creative and what do we want to do? Uh, what can we do? What is achievable? All of a sudden, yes, I w it's like I work for Edge now. Mm. Um, and it's the point at which I started going to E3 and traveling a, a lot more as well. Like I think my my first issue as games editor, I did the cover story and like went to Poland um, to see The Witcher 3. And that was like super early and super, you know, exciting. Mm. And, and although that was all, like you actually, you asked me about like mad, mad press trips in the show notes. And that was one of the ones I thought of. It was my very first like cover trip, preview trip. And I was only an overnight stay. I was like, I'm just going to take the clothes that I'm wearing. Oh, I'll be all right. I don't need a change of clothes. Um, apart from, obviously, underwear and socks. I'm not an animal. Uh, and the PR for CD Projekt took me out the night before and spilled a full litre of beer over my jeans. Um, <laughs> so I had to go to the studio the next morning with, with beery trousers, which was a, a baptism of something, for sure. That was a great cover, though. The, it was that giant killer, the words on the cover, if I recall. That's the one. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was the one. Yeah, that was back. And it was back when we didn't do a great big feature either for the um, for the cover. It, it was just a, a six page preview, I think, with terrific access. And like I went to E3, I think it was like two months or so after taking over after taking over as games editor. Um, and that was in the days when Future would still ship like a couple of thousand copies out to E3. And all of a sudden, like, it's like, wow, I'm in E3 for the, at E3 for the first time. This is incredible. Holy crap, people are walking around with this magazine uh, whose cover story I wrote. And, huh. Yeah. So it, it really was that kind of validation, I think, and, and the, the point at which it started to feel proper. When did you start writing those E3 conference reports? Because... They were absolutely scorching. I love those. <laughs> what for the for the mag? You mean? Yeah, I the, just because um... they definitely went up online as well. So I didn't know if yes. you were doing those when you were on Edge Online specifically, but um, yeah, they were great. Do you know? I can't. I can't remember. So I know that Duncan Harris certainly was doing them when I joined. Right. And I mean, Duncan was a master of it. I, I learned so much from that. Just that, like managing to be absolutely searing while and and hilarious while still making like a really good point um like a really insightful point that that no one else is going to make like it's like okay that's that was kind of like a north star to aim for i know i took over at some point but i can't i can't remember honestly like at, wh at which point i did it but i reckon yeah games ed was probably about the right mm. about the time when it would have happened yeah there was a bit of stormy weather at future in 2014 um so i was curious nathan how how edge changed around you in the years since you you started there and and that point when there was the um, the closure of the London office, uh, well, downsizing of the London office, and it was just generally quite a scary time, I remember being at Future. Um, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, like, you, I saw this in the notes, and it was like, what happened in 2014? Because <laughs> there was always, there was like always something happening, I think. Like, and it's, it's kind of hard to like narrow it down. What I would say as a sort of prelude to that is like when I started... There were, uh, like, we started on the website, there were a couple of people who had recently left the mag, and I, I won't name them because it's probably not my place to, but they'd clearly, like, uh, had a bad experience and had quit 
um, with bad memories uh, of, of it. And it became very, very quickly apparent to me that for as long as I worked for Future and for Edge, there was going to be this like seesaw, this balance. And it was going to be a balance between my enthusiasm for uh, what I did and the thing that I made and the people that I worked with versus my um apathy and distaste for the company that paid my wages mm -hmm. and i think like over the over the years that was a very difficult balance for me to strike but i think i at least knew it was coming i think what happened is that we just got smaller and smaller and smaller and every time it happened we said we can't possibly get like they, they can't go any further than this surely they can't <laughs> like this is ridiculous i mean we peaked at 14 people i think which was admittedly across online. It was when we had a functional iPad edition as well that had like a dedicated team of, I think like one and a half people just doing art and production mm. and stuff. But still 14 people. And then by the time uh, I was editor, we had like three, one art editor, one editor, one deputy editor, and one production editor who has to make two magazines, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, it, just kept, it just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I like got, progressively more resentful of it over time but every four weeks an issue of a magazine that i made would plop on my desk and everything would be briefly right with the world you know or i'd go on a like really cool trip or um you know something something amazing would happen that i knew i wouldn't get to do anywhere else and so i dealt with it but yeah like one 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 year andrew hind the edges art editor and um a true friend and probably the most talented person i've ever worked with made me a birthday card and it was like a it was like Nathan's kill list, and then it was just a list of all the people that had left um, <laughs> since I joined, with their like with like red pen through it, and then at the bottom you'd written all the people I had to kill on the way to the top. <laughs> and there were like ten, and there were like ten people, because apart from apart from games editor, I didn't like interview for any of these roles. I didn't apply for anything. I was just sort of parachuted into them. I mean, I like I, I parlayed the deped role for myself actually. It was after they they made. Um, Michael Gaffer redundant and or he'd left I think during during the redundancy consultation mm. so the team had got smaller and they were like right we're just going to run it with uh, a games editor and, and an editor and I was like you can't tell me that like you're going to give I'm going to take on most of his work I would have thought you can't call that games editor anymore it's Deped and they went all right it's Deped yeah <laughs> so it was yeah um 2014 i don't know man but uh the, the 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 challenge of running edge changed constantly because we kept getting smaller yeah um it was pretty clear pretty early on that that was going to be the direction of travel pretty much indefinitely mm. you becoming editor made perfect sense to me though because you seem like such a sensible careful pair of hands and a great steward for the brand so it made complete sense to me um if anything it, it feels it felt weird when i joined pc gamer and you were a section editor and i thought this guy seems like he projects the the sort of persona of an editor i would say so um yeah i'm not <laughs> sure what my, yeah, i don't know what point is there but i just it seemed like you're always going to be running edge you know yeah it kind of makes sense i was conscious of the fact that i was a few years older than most people as well so i think i kind of naturally uh, exuded gravitas and authority and increasingly gray as well of course but, um <laughs> Yeah, I was I was obviously delighted when it happened. Don't get me wrong. So, how much of running edge is preserving what came before versus putting your own mark on it? It's a really interesting question, and I think that 
especially with with something like this of, of such longevity right like it's knocking on for 30 years now you can't not be beholden to the past but at the same time the past is so big and so sprawling and has been worked on by so many people that you also can't like slavishly adhere to it because edge has broken its own rules over over the years as well right I'm sure they used to use the word impressive until the, uh, one day it was banned. Um, <laughs> that's why, seriously, my first day, the first thing I wrote for the website uh, had the word impressive in it, and Alex went, impressive is banned. It's like, okay, I never wrote it again. <laughs> it's like, don't tell, me, don't tell me it's impressive. Tell me why it's impressive. It's oh, very good classic. advice, Alex. Classic advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Alex Watcher was a wonderful human as well. A wonderful boss. Um, yeah, so there's there's li- not an awful lot of room to put your own stamp on something that is so so old, I guess, um, so loved, so quite rigorously templated. But I do like to think that I kind of I changed a few things. Uh, this was happening like towards towards the end of my time on Depot anyway. But I wanted to make Edge funny again. Like I think that the people's criticism of uh, the common criticism leveled at Edge that it's too po-faced and you know all the rest of it. Like I never really got that. I always thought Edge was hilarious when it wanted to be, mm. and so it was about trying to get some of that spirit back into it. I think my um, the column that I wrote for a few years was a good way of like bringing some of that in because it enabled me to be first person and you know self-deprecating and be me basically but it was it was more about empowering the writers to go look you know i'm not saying do like love island gags or knob jokes (laughs) but like please please don't feel that you're going to get told off if you you know if you like just try and make me smile basically try and make me laugh yeah um and i think that was one thing and and, and then in amongst things you kind of you make little tweaks in the margins right like you change the nature of a page here we, we changed what the back page did oh back page um uh, we changed the back page of the mag to be this thing called the long game which was an a, a way of hopefully paying attention to the sort of long-running live servicey things yeah. that media normally has to abandon it's like little little stuff like that really and i think uh, as a final point we also how much of this you can say was my stamp i don't know but we paid a lot more attention to indies mm. and i think we were pretty early actually in really giving over a significant amount of the mag to that stuff and i i take no credit for this personally i think for like one element of it was just circumstantial and like triple a stuff was getting harder and harder to get access to as you know like lead times just shrank to to a matter of days and the priority shifted first to online and then to youtube and Mm. stuff um but also i was just surrounded by like uh jen simpkins who said some really nice stuff about me on this podcast and i'm gonna like just not say anything nice about her at all because <laughs> that's the kind that's the kind of boss that I was. Uh, but like Jen and uh, and Chris Schilling were like super passionate about indies, right? And I think the job of a a boss, a, a good manager, is to find what your staff or your team are passionate about, and then empower them to like leverage. No, not leverage it, but just empower them to to chase after it, basically, mm. and do do the work that excites them and and, and motivates them. Um, and so Jen and Chris, between them, would just like go out and find stuff that, I mean, Jen and I laugh about this quite often. Uh, but like, there's this this kind of meme uh, among us when some writer for some website will go, "Wow, this game, this indie game, 
I never heard of it. It's amazing. Like I think when Outer Wilds came out, there was loads of that, and it was like we'd written about Outer Wilds like four years before it came out, mm. and we'd previewed it like several times, and there was this this kind of recurring sense that we were very much in on the ground floor, like championing championing quite a lot of stuff, mm. um, and that was that was very much led and driven by um, by Jen and by Chris. Uh, and I feel bad for saying that I wasn't going to say anything nice about Jen, but she she knows how much <laughs> I care for her. <laughs> yeah. So, are there any issues or covers you're proudest of from your run? Uh, was the um did the lockdown issue happen in your time, Nathan? First of all, yeah, fucking yes, it did. And thank you for asking because <laughs> it was recently misattributed to my successor um, <laughs> by a by a public by a publication of some repute as well. Guardian, I see you. Oh. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, yes, then editor Jen Simpkins, my ass. Yeah, so I, I think like um, f- feel better is for sure um, the the one I will always cherish. I think just because of the circumstances out of which it was born. You know, we were all struggling, we were all scared, we were all you know, I don't know. That, that future was shitting a bed as well, and kind of condensing budgets and pagination and not putting issues on newsstands and stuff and it all just felt very bleak both within the working world and, and without it right mm. um and and someone suggested doing a feature like why don't we do a feature of games that would make you feel better and i just sort of said in an offhand way like why don't we do the whole issue and that was that and what i loved about that team um you i would say something jokingly like that like andrew's brilliant for this you kind of say something offhand not meaning it, just taking the piss or something like that, and then like twenty minutes later, you come back and he's mocked it up, and it looks fucking incredible. That's uh, that's got like, oh, powerful right. biopic film energy. That's him. <laughs> like, he said this, I said this, and we made history. <laughs> and, then it, and then it happened. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I don't, don't want to. You know, it's not history. You could call it history, Matthew. I would never dare, uh, <laughs> never, never dare blow my trumpet in this in this way. Um, but. Yeah, it was, I don't know, man, just seeing the reaction to it, seeing the buzz to it, and, and the fact that it was my final issue as well. Like, I got quite emotional writing um, the Ed intro, which is always the last thing you write, as you you guys both know. And I got quite emotional writing it, because it was like, wow, this is the last one, and, you know, who knows what's going on in the world and stuff. And just seeing people, like, taking fucking camera photos of it and sharing it around Twitter and stuff, because it had struck a struck a chord, mm. um, was was just really lovely. So that that was definitely, like, one cover but there, there's a few others as well one that predates i think i was deputy is either games ed or deputy ed was the miyamoto cover oh yeah um the wii u where he's holding up the wii u return of the king we called it <laughs> um <laughs> because that was like i think about as pure an expression of the power of edge and the, the ability that edge had to kind of make things happen and, and unlock doors, I guess. Mm. So what had originally happened with that, it was never planned as a cover story, uh, nor was it ever planned as us being the first like foreign media to go to Nintendo's new Kyoto headquarters, all the rest of it. Miyamoto was supposed to be in Paris doing one of those 3DS things at the Louvre oh, yeah. that they were doing at the time. Yeah. And we'd been invited to go over and interview him. And I was going to go, and then, like, last minute, Miyamoto's father was taken ill, and Miyamoto didn't make the trip. So, very apologetic Nintendo PR. I'm like, look, it's fine, don't worry about it, things happen, whatever. And then, like, a month or so goes by, and same PR comes back, and it's like, NCL feel terrible, and they'd like to 
make it right what can they do to make it right it's like fuck about really okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> now tony had always taught me to like you know ask always ask, don't be afraid to ask for too much right mm. because that's how that's how really great things get done always ask for more if you want to see more you know you never know so i was like well i mean if you really wanted to rescue it you'd um we could fly out to japan and meet Miyamoto and sit down with him we talk about these prototypes for Wii U that we know that he's working on and we could put that on the cover and we could maybe bring a photographer if you had the funding for that as well and we could do a photo shoot and I sent that off it's like yeah whatever and they came back like a week later and said yep oh wow uh, Miyamoto <laughs> wants to do it so so off he goes and Matthew you might remember this as well but in a, not only that uh, we said it'd be really nice to like follow this interview up with a feature looking at like the games that are in development for Wii U at the moment. How about if we did a load of email Q&As with the developers of all the big first and third party yeah. games that are, that are in development at the moment? And they came back and said yes. Wow. So, so, you know, so we had like Itagaki and... Um, a bunch of other people who like that's the splatoon guy yeah, i was gonna say yeah mario I, kart I, yeah i remember that as being like a oh here are new people you don't hear from ever you know it was kind of because yeah. that all the time that i was on the nintendo mags there was always this big thing about like the sort of miyamoto would be the spokesman no matter what the game was and yeah. then i think internally something changed and they started wanting to put like other people in front of other people but that was definitely an early example of oh wow holy shit like all these people this is crazy like the access you guys got yeah i think yeah, i remember you saying i don't know if you said it to me or said it to someone else but i certainly heard that you'd said there's more that there's more nintendo access in that one issue than i've had in the last three years or something. <laughs> oh, ever i've 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 only ever interviewed one person from nintendo which was a gucci and i interviewed him on behalf of edge e3 <laughs> oh my god so, sorry yeah but yeah, so that that was definitely one man because it yeah it was that real like uh, ask and you never know and you might be surprised just what um, just what the brand does. Um, if I can just very quickly mention another couple as well Ooh, uh, while I, while I'm here, um, the the Final Fantasy covers which you, you talked to Parker about when oh, yeah. um, when you had him on. Amazing. That was another another one actually just because I think I, it was about a week after I took over and I was on the train on the way up. Uh, after I'd taken over as, as editor, I was on the train up to London to go to an arms event. And Ian Dixon, who then was the PR at, uh, at Square Enix, um, like called me up and he was like, hey, it's the Final Fantasy, uh, like, whatever, was it 25th anniversary, I guess, uh, coming up. It's been 25 at that point, I think, or maybe 30. Forgive me for not knowing. Like, this this coming up, we, we'd love to do some kind of, like, cover tie-in with you. What would it take to make it happen? And I was like, the train was just pulling into Paddington. I'm like, look, mate, I don't know. I'm just getting off the train. But if there's not a single game to hang it off, I guess we're going to have to try and tell the complete story of Final Fantasy in a magazine involving interviews with everybody that's been involved over the last, like, three decades and maybe some kind of cover split run. And I was just, like, honestly, like, <laughs> thinking out loud and trying to get Ian off the phone so that I could go and get on the tube. And he was like, okay, cool, leave it with me. And then that's exactly what fucking happened. <laughs> so that was a real, a real treat. See, if I'd, been, if I'd been having that conversation, because I expected so little on the mags I was on, I would have asked for, could we do some Chocobo drinks coasters as a free gift? <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been my pitch. To be fair, I'd quite like some Chocobo drinks coasters. <laughs> yeah. But always 
being that, that sense of encouragement from Tony to just like not be afraid to to ask for for more than they're offering, mm. uh, and that ha- some variation of that happened like every month. You know, someone would be like, "This is the only art we have," and they'd send you like two bits of key art, and I'm like, "You're telling me that the entire concept art folder." on in, in this development studio and he has these two pieces in it like you have you have more art right <laughs> like please please can please can we see it and just always pushing back on it and a lot of uh, prs and, and and companies were like really surprised really taken aback by that mm. by kind of like no we're telling you that this is like this is all we've got or this is what's been signed off and it's like well, we're telling you that you can't put that on the cover of edge and so you know we're going to need to see something else like like always always being yeah always ask for more yeah play hardball yes and lastly the the 25th anniversary um which with uh with the multiple custom covers painted for us by the like just staggeringly talented dave white for absolutely no money at all like just for the love of it because he'd been reading edge since issue one um and and wanted to be involved and getting all that done and that also had like the nagoshi uh interview in it as well so that's another like uh, that we were talking about earlier so that's another one that's very close to my heart nice. wow yeah amazing stuff um so something else that i think marked your time on edge nathan is you seem to have very close ties to bungie and you're very uh you're very kind of tuned into destiny overall as a as a series so what, what was um what were the origins of that and uh i suppose like how did you develop that sort of closeness it just felt like you were several steps ahead of everyone else and i felt like do you know Luke Smith, the director as well, or the then director? Is that right? Yeah, like, but only as a result of the work that I've done on Destiny, you know, the, the writing that I've done on, on Destiny. I didn't know him before or right, anything right. like that. Um, I mean, like, honestly, I just played it a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. Uh, the, the year it came out, I had a regular raid team. We would, you know, I'd run, like, uh, whatever the latest raid was with at least two, like, three characters every week. It, it was kind of my um, my social club right it was the pub that you could go to my first my oldest son had just been born he was like one one and a half at the time so still very much in that indoors mode um so it it came along at the the perfect time really uh luke would later describe it as um the bar i can go to in my pajamas and all my friends are there every night it's like that's just that's exactly like what it was for me And I think that like the people that I was playing with, they weren't other game journalists. I tried that once; it was fucking horrible. Um, the, uh, I played. I was playing with like people I knew on forums, people I used to play Street Fighter with, and, and and associated like kind of friends of theirs and stuff that would that would come in and come out over time. And they all just were really smart people, and we would talk about the game in this very like not like oh this is bullshit way, but. <laughs> <laughs> you know we would if we would i don't know we, we, we would just weigh up the 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 merits of the game and 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 get all, all games that we were playing and stuff but but mostly destiny and trying in this very like even-handed way not trying not to get too like emotional about about it but you know trying to be sympathetic to what the developers are trying to do you know just like good like good game criticism mm. basically and that like really really informed my my thinking on it right so when i got the opportunity to go over to bungie for the first time for the taken king which was the first major expansion that came out like a year after the base game and most cover trips that i went on during my career 
I didn't know anything or I hardly knew anything, right? You, you take a notebook, but you don't really need it because you're just going to like walk in and go, so this game you've just announced that I know nothing about. Could you tell me about it? Mm. Uh, and you have a conversation and you ask good questions. Whereas by the time I got to Bungie for that Taken King thing, I had like 400 fucking hours of, of experience. Um, and I was so like informed and so on top of not only uh, the state of the game, but their comms, how they were managing their community, like, you know, and the the final interview for that feature was with um, Luke Smith, who was the, I think, game director at that point. Uh, Mark Noseworthy, executive producer, and uh, Eric. Uh, oh, my God, Eric. I'm sorry. I can't remember your surname. Everyone calls him Irk. Um, <laughs> and it was scheduled for half an hour, and we were still there like an hour and three quarters later. It was just one of the best interviews I've ever oh, done. Oh, wow. Like, you know, just like really in the weeds really honest and like once they realized that i knew what i was talking about and that i also was there for a conversation on looking for headlines and all the, all the rest of it like they just opened up completely you know it was yeah it, it was just beautiful and off, off the back of that i came pretty pretty firm friends with um with luke and mark um they're both lovely people and uh Less so eric me <laughs> Uh, no, I'm, Eric was the marketing guy, man. He also, he, uh, he also. I met him again, like uh, before they announced Destiny Two, and he was a bit frosty with me. And I found out the reason he was a bit frosty was that I put a quote of his in the piece um, that, uh, like, the whole studio had been like taking the piss out of him for like ever since. So I'd asked about the. Um, the Activision, because they obviously they were Activision owned at that time, and I think Activision had given them five hundred, I think it was five hundred million, I want to say, um, to build what would become Destiny. And uh, we were kind of talking about that, and Irk said, "I drive a Honda Civic. What the fuck do I know about five hundred million dollars?" And it's like, as soon as he said it, you're just like, "Oh my god, I could kiss you. That's beautiful. Like, that was that was that was a pull quote, you know, um, in, in the feature and stuff." And yeah, he he, he said like, "Yeah, I heard that uh, people." people had always been but like would often repeat it to maybe been a bit been a bit sour about it uh sorry those um uh, king covers were handsome as hell though so you had a split run there, yeah right? yeah three-way three-way split run like custom and like there's there's always been i think what what really helped me with that is that there's always for fairly obvious reasons been a very like mutually admiring relationship between Bungie between Bungie and edge mm. going on you know the the halo 10 which it, I think set a lot of things in motion and you know that yeah there's just there's there's this kind of mutual admiration uh for for each other they you know you you walk in to bungee and there's copies of edge on the walls and you know like all of that sort of stuff yeah uh, so i think that that kind of helped a lot and they were super willing just going yeah well yeah we'll do you three bits of custom cover art what do you think and like they, and they took notes on them as well wow um and, and that just sort of continued really and it was like i used to get the piss taken out of me by um various uh readers because like we we really did do too much destiny coverage in that <laughs> in that period of time and it was you know like people on like rollmark and stuff high rollmark uh would would say oh uh nathan's nathan's written about destiny again he's found another excuse to do right. like, still play uh, still playing on it or another review of an expansion or another cover feature or whatever but it was just because that i mean that taken king one had sold brilliantly um yeah. by our normal standards i i think it's still one of the best things i've ever written and you know yeah we were just trying like i don't know i was I was perfectly happy with us like standing for destiny at yeah. a time when everybody every, the consensus was that all oh, these games like dead 
or shit or whatever. It's mm. it's it's like super rare when you work on a magazine that you get to have that kind of deep relationship because so much stuff is kind of like one and done. You know, you you maybe put it on like one issue, maybe it gets covered in a second issue, and then you move on. And you like you know th- that kind of specialist knowledge is maybe more associated with online writing where you can have an ongoing relationship. You know, like you know Tim Clark is a similar destiny head and can revisit it you know weekly if he so chooses on pc gamer but on magazines it's it's hard to do that you don't have an outlet for that kind of specialist knowledge and like but i love it when someone does have it and they do get to tap into it and it's just so obvious on the page of like oh i i just there is nothing better than someone who knows what they're talking about getting to talk about their specialist subject it's just especially in print where it's so you know beautifully presented and edited and everything it's just the dream Totally agree with everything you just said. Nathan, um, Edge recently gave out a rare 10 out of 10. Um, I won't say what the game is because the issue is still on sale and people should go read it. But can you talk about safeguarding your scoring system as an editor? Because I always felt like Edge has done a good job of maintaining consistency with this. When I've worked on big big outlets with international teams, it's really, really hard to keep keep a lid on it, keep it in control. So... I suppose, like, how much of a conversation would you have about whether something deserves a 10 or a 9? And how did you safeguard that system as an editor? Well, this, uh, to be perfectly honest, it's because I wrote all of the 10s. So <laughs> no one was going to argue with me. Mr. 10. On it, so, yeah, like, I'm, I think Chris Schilling said I'm responsible for, like, more than a quarter of all Edge 10s, um, which, you know, is something. But th- there was uh, a couple that... Uh, I think the first one was Chris Schilling reviewing a Switch game that came out in 2017 that wasn't Breath of the Wild. There you go, Tony. I preserved the anonymity. <laughs> um, and uh, and that was the first time that I'd, I'd had that sort of, as editor anyway, that conversation of like, I think this might be the one. And then it's, you know, it's really just about like, do you, if you make if you convince me on the page, then I'm going to be convinced. Mm. Uh, it was the same with with dreams. Um, it was the same when I was writing them myself. It's just like you know, I've I've got a fucking you know, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to build up. Mm. Um, so so yeah, I think like the, the tens often are fairly apparent. Like they tend to announce themselves quite ahead of time a little bit. I think there's like this rare pantheon of games anyway where you're like you sit down with it for the first time and it's rather than saying, show me why you are not a seven, it's show me the ways in which you are not a 10. Right. Um, and I think, I think there's like a very small select, um, you know, certain Nintendo games. I, I would argue certain rockstar games from soft games now as well, you know, where you, you kind of, you come down rather than going up. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that sense of the, the, the edge, like, the review itself there's like an inevitability that there's going to be a 10 you know when when you've when you've written it right when you've written a yeah. 10 and i have i have written probably one of the most hated edge 10s of all time and <laughs> but i still think that review is an edge 10 review i think it's yep. you know like i i feel it's fully justified and i'll i'll stand by that piece of writing but um even like even outside of edge when you've got a big big score from a magazine um yeah. that sense of like momentum building to it and even if you've skipped ahead and you've seen the score you're like oh yeah this is it we're you know it's it's just this is all working for me i'm really in i'm really into this um yeah so I, cool. I, I always i loved the idea of like um because the if it's a lead review anyway then it 
spills over onto a third page there's an actual page turn involved so first there's a commitment involved <laughs> like for the reader to kind of really want to spoil the score for themselves but you also just get to like tease them it's like oh my god is it it's happening isn't it? is it happening oh my god and you're sort of building building towards it can you can you resist the temptation to to turn the page yeah i, I loved it man the i used to um when i was writing my reviews uh like write the score at the end in the like the old edge style like i think or the the era of uh when i first discovered it which was like in the score was just in square brackets yeah. in plain text and bold at the end <laughs> so i'd like all the way through my career it was just like open open square bracket number close square bracket we'll worry about the worry but nathan will write box out on page and send it off to like whoever and i tell you there is no feeling like more like emotional and powerful than like open bracket one zero close bracket like <laughs> fucking mic drop like, walk away roar to the sky you know <laughs> yeah man it's a it's a terrific a terrific feeling cut to one month later and you're on the forums and they're like what yeah, the fuck yeah. Are you thinking? And you're like, oh well man. there goes that feeling hey man i only regret like two of them <laughs> <laughs> um so Nathan, last up uh, when it comes to Edge, what was an Edge E3 trip like? I always got the sense you had a slightly different version of E3 to me, maybe one that was slightly less less common um, that that, uh, that games journalists would experience. You seemed like you had a level of closeness to publishers and developers that maybe uh, the publications I worked on didn't have. Um, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but what was an Edge E3 like for you? I mean, at, at the beginning, they were exactly the same as, as everybody else's E3s, which was, you know, whatever shit old future is prepared to, like, put you up in, <laughs> sh- like, sharing a room and, and doing doing your best. And I was certainly, like, completely, like, overwhelmed by it the, the first couple of years um, that I went. But we realised pretty, or I realised pretty quickly that in order for Edge to do E3 in the way that I felt we should be doing E3, you know, like one of the last multi-format magazines... Uh, the luxury of time like normally anyway like after the show to kind of put something like big together and also like bluntly like stretched increasingly stretched in terms of budgets uh, so we should get as much out of this uh, out of this festival of video games as we can that we needed two people out there but future would only ever pay uh, for one so we needed to find another way to get someone else out there which normally meant um, getting some kind of like sponsorship uh, this year peek behind the curtain um from a third-party publisher or whatever um and after michael gapper had left uh he'd gone out with like activision i think the, the year before it was also the year that i was i think doing destiny stuff with them or cod or something uh and they were like look why don't you come out come out to e3 we'll um you know you don't have to write about any of our stuff at all but you're going to do a cover we were going to do a cover trip later that year anyway uh come out and meet the team and and, and all the rest of it and it was all very like light touch very pleasant like no problem at all and so i went from like staying in uh the ramada roach motel um with future to that first year and it never got this good again admittedly and it was apparently the result of some weird like block booking rate that activision had got to make the beverly hills hotel uh in an 800 dollars a night suite <laughs> and and all of a sudden it was like oh man do you know what la is all right like, i thought LA... <laughs> I thought LA was like awful and had, you know, like the saddle ranch and, and, and you have to stay in motels where people have been murdered and stuffed into water tanks and all the rest of it. (laughs) But yeah, so that like, that was my first like kind of realization. It's like, actually, if you can do it, you know, better than, um, better than normal, then the whole experience becomes a lot more comfortable. Um, 
we uh, i also just i th- you know it's not that i enjoyed better relationships with 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 publishers and stuff but i think i just got better at navigating it over time like knowing the quick routes understanding that you're not going to get every single there's no point putting appointments back to back because it's going to take you 20 minutes to get mm. from one to the other and so give yourself half an hour to go outside and have a smoke or, or you know like whatever make your way over there leisurely and yeah like it, it it just became over time. I think as I got to know more people around the industry, it started feeling like more of a, a social occasion at which I did a lot of work. And, and I, I could just like spend time just floating around between various booths, just going to say hello to people. And actually the conversations that you have going to say hello to people are like way more useful and productive than going and seeing like the hands-off demo for the new Just Cause. Um, right. <laughs> And I, I think that's that's just kind of a, a function of it. But yeah, like I I I love E3. Like whatever whatever kind of hotel uh, I'm in or uh, however, however bad it is, it was like the highlight um, of my year. And I think it was the same for a lot of a lot of people as well. Having consumed magazines with such fervor as a kid, and then having watched like the live streams of them, like being in the room for for stuff when it happens, like that that. I talk about this far too much, but that that Sony conference in 2015 with like Final Fantasy VII remake, uh, Last Guardian, and Shenmue three like in the space of like 10 minutes, and I've never, you know, I, I, as you know, I, I I spent time in loud rooms with loud music and very excitable crowds. I've never experienced a room like that. It was just this like communal explosion of shock and hype mm-hmm. and wonder. Um, what would you get it as a club ready? You know, <laughs> It's fine. The um the the drugs were terrible, <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but you know. But then then like you know the next year you go to the Sony thing and they announce a Crash Bandicoot remaster, <laughs> and because the audience is American, they all go fucking spare again, and like all the Brits are just sitting there going what? <laughs> uh, it's kind of kind of business as business as usual. Yeah. Uh, good well, stuff. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for uh, answering our questions in such detail, uh, Nathan on Edge. That's much appreciated. So um, let's take one more quick break, and we'll come back and talk about hit points and some other stuff. Welcome back to the podcast, the final section of this episode where we're going to talk to Nathan a bit about his Hit Points substack and how that's going and some of the other work he's doing now. So Nathan, Hit Points seems like a natural segue from your Edge column that uh, existed in your last few years working on the mag. So what led to you launching it? Incidentally, I wonder if you get data uh, or if you could get data to find out how many people like drop off at this point. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's stopped talking. He's stopped telling his war stories now. Uh, <laughs> It's the boring promo bit. So, after, like after I left Edge, uh, I I went off and did some like marketing, uh, sort of copywriting work for a little while, and uh, it was boring as shit. And um, <laughs> I came back and I was like, right, I want to build up a consultancy business, and I want I want to write again. Like I missed writing, writing. Sorry, tease. And and I wanted to get back into it, but 
like once you've written for Edge, <laughs> um, it's going to sound really sniffy, but like it's just it's not as fun writing for other people. Is the first thing. <laughs> um, the the second thing is that I think at the time the landscape was such that quite correctly, the last thing that most traditional like gaming websites needed was the input of another old white guy with a beard. You know they were they were absolutely right to to be looking to add more diversity to their ranks and in and in the absence of full-time hires were, were focusing their freelance budgets on that thirdly i think and thirdly didn't pay very well yeah. <laughs> and i didn't i knew certainly like knew enough <laughs> that that wasn't going to be sustainable like um in and of itself and fourthly like the, the sorts of stuff that you you know i don't know i'm not sure i wanted to write like copy for today's web really mm. um you know, search optimized stuff, maybe commissioning decisions driven by data. Like it, it just didn't excite me. So I was like, right. I can't see you writing few... ending explains for Marvel movies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, so I was like, right, okay. What are my options here? And there were, I'm very, very sorry, given what you said at the start, but like, I'm going to talk about sport a little bit here. There were two sports web, sports websites that have been set up in like recent years that are both in one way or another subscription funded. One is called Defecto, which was like formed from the ashes of an old Gorka site called Deadspin. Um, and that is like, you know, paid pretty much i don't think it's fully paywalled uh, but i think if you want to comment and if you want absolutely everything and all the podcasts and stuff then then you have to pay and that's like a they run it like a workers co-op there's no venture funding it's fully funded by by readers uh, they're their own bosses they have you know they they drew up their own like charter of working conditions and all of that sort of stuff and it's like it's, it's fucking amazing and it, it's also a huge success i think like their first year's revenue was like 3 or 4 million something like that mm-hmm. So, you know, incredible. The second one is The Athletic, which is like sort of the same thing, but venture funded and driven by subscription revenue. And their business model was we're just going to go and hoover up every like pissed off, disenchanted uh, sports reporter, at every local paper and national paper and get them to like, you know, come in, come in and do stuff for us. So those seem to me like two options mm. for me to be able to do what I wanted. But bluntly... They both sounded like quite a lot of work. <laughs> uh, they both sounded like a gamble. I thought like the, the workers co-op idea, like I would love to be able to do that. But what am I going to do? Go to like Donlan, you know, who's got kids and multiple sclerosis and say, hey, do you want to just come and jump off a cliff with me? Like, right. I think it'll be all right, but I don't know. And, you know, like every, everybody I know that I would certainly want to work with has got commitments. And, you know, I mean, everybody does, right? Uh, so that, that just didn't feel like it would work either. And it was like, okay, all right. What if I just did something by myself in which I was only accountable to myself, didn't have to deal with investors or anything like that. And it effectively built something like a one-man defector for me. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's when I um, became, I mean, I'd been aware of Substack for a little while, but it was just like, hang on a minute, this, this might work and you know I, I i knew the tone that i wanted um because as you say i'd written an edge column which was that sort of mix of uh industry analysis and self-deprecating cries for help from a struggling parent um i knew how to be serious and funny at the same time i think anyway and it would also be a a, a decent shop window for my consultancy work i hope i hoped mm. um and so yeah i just like I took the plunge. I, I started uh, tooling around with it, uh, just just me for a couple of weeks. Then brought in a few people, like Michael Gapper and Jen and Donlan uh, and Chris Schilling, 
uh, early on just to kind of be like, all right, could you read this for a week and tell me what you think of the cadence of it and the tone and the structure and all the rest of it? And then I was just like, all right, fine, let's do it <laughs> and launched it. And it's, I mean, look, uh, there are people on Substack who are making like millions. I am not one of those people <laughs> and, uh, uh, and and I will not be for, for some time. But I think like it's, you know, we're coming up on 3000 readers now like very close to i think that'll, that'll probably hit in the next like few days awesome. uh which is you know a huge milestone um for me personally um and yeah i don't know matthew you said to me a while back it's like it's so nice to make something that people like something that's yours and comes purely yes. from you and is your voice that's what i found with this podcast like I've, I've been taught that my value has only ever existed to kind of help a brand happen uh, yeah. And when those brands go away, you're like, well, well, I'm done then. You know, like, what am I without official Nintendo or Endgamer? But yeah, like this, this sort of new age of something else kind of living coming from you is just, yes, yeah, fucking rad. I, I, like, and that was especially the case, like for me, right? Because you come. I mean, there's such a veil of anonymity over so much of Edge still, mm. right? And I think that, like, the people that knew me knew how much of a, like, impact uh, or an imprint I had, I guess, on, mm. on the mag during that time. But you're never entirely sure. Like, I don't have the profile of a Jason Schreier or, you know, whoever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry. Shout out to Sam White. Uh, that's how Sam says Jason Schreier, right. and now I do as <laughs> well. But you know, but but I, don't, but I don't have this like enormous, you know, profile that could give me a leg up straight away. And there was a bit of uncertainty, really, with with like, were these people who I thought were, were my friends like actually my friends, or were they just like you know, well, the Edge guy? You have to be friends with with the Edge guy, right? And you know, so you never know. Like, am I just gonna sit? Is this just gonna sink? But I think I had like six hundred signups on on the first day. Uh, and it's naturally tapered off since then, but um, but it's, it's trucking along really really nicely. I really like the work, uh, like really like it. It's it's some of the most fulfilling stuff I've done like in my in my entire career, I think. And yeah, this is a nice little. I, I think you guys have probably found this as well. The little the little it's a community building around of it mm. around it. A few people asked for a Discord. I was like. All right. Um, but, you know, it's like a couple of hundred people in there talking about lunch. It's, it's, just, it's just nice. It's, yeah. it's really nice, really heartening. Do you, uh, do yeah, you feel like sort of a weird god descending whenever you turn go into the Discord, though? <laughs> I don't think myself a god, but just that you draw people to you because they're like, oh, it's the source, it's the originator. <laughs> My name is in blue. Right. Uh, yeah. Like. Yeah. No. No. Not really. I mean. Okay. That's just know, me. It's, then. It's just, that's just you. Yeah. I think that's. Uh, do not project your little hang-ups onto me, Matthew Castle. I shall have none of it. <laughs> yeah. I think um, the reason it stood out, Nathan, is that everyone seems to think they're a games industry analyst these days, which is interminable. And you know, you have this angle and careful honesty you don't get elsewhere. So. What do you make of that landscape more generally? I suppose, what were your values coming into it and uh, and shaping it? It kind of goes back to what I was talking about with Destiny, right? And my, and my raid group and kind of always trying to see things from Bungie's perspective rather than just complaining about it. Uh, and I think like a lot of my edge work, particularly like the, the column uh, and any time I had to write lead news, it was very much like zooming out and putting stuff in some sort of wider context, right? And and that's absolutely the 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 approach that I kind of try and take with it. I think 
the I don't know, like you say that everyone thinks they're an analyst these days. Like I I, I don't think it's as bad as like that kind of when I when I started, like twenty ten era when Michael Pactor was in like every other headline mm. and you had this kind of like armchair and an, an analysis thing going on as a result of it because people thought that was like how you were supposed to supposed to talk about this oh, stuff and actually like the part of the reason i wanted to do it is because there was a bit of a vacuum for for this sort of coverage but yeah like the the games industry is still really good at like you know breaking things down and condensing stuff but uh, there's, there's really like not a lot out there of this kind of okay we've all read the news but what do we th- what does that mean like what do we think about it why does it matter does it matter even mm. you know? uh, and having a venue to to do that sort of stuff is um uh, like i've said this to a few people before but like this is all stuff that if i wasn't writing about it i would just be like whatsapping someone about right mm. like I, I i kind of need to talk about this stuff to, to uh, someone that's interesting because like whenever when i re- read um hit points uh what i always think is like how do you have this many full formed takes like on (laughs) you know these don't just feel sort of dashed out you know like i'm just interested from a kind of practicality side like how how long do you spend writing these things because uh uh, that like uh, i look at them and think and that would be over like that would literally be over a day of like really intensive thinking for me to get to get anywhere near that like I, I will spend the the whole day kind of tweaking and polishing, and the first draft is never the thing thing that goes out. But I reckon like t- two hours oh, tops, blimey, for most of it. And and there are like enough opportunity. I mean, like I say, like I'm thinking about this stuff all the time anyway, right? Or I'm talking to people about this stuff, or or I remember a conversation that I had with someone like five years ago that all of a sudden seems weirdly fucking relevant, right. um, and and now it comes. But yeah, like it, it, it doesn't take long. I've always written quickly, which I've always put down to that. The very first job I had Barclay, at Barclays Bank doing data entry, sending payments around, which these days you can do with your phone. It's a lot of that in my career now I think about it. <laughs> um, and uh, I went in on my first day and they were like, right, here's what you got to do. You got to put on these details, these are the amount. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, you've got one week to do 100 of these a day or you're fired. I was like, okay, I guess I better do 100 of these a day. And I think like that's always, it's like fast and accurate. Fast and accurate has always been the way I've um, right. worked, at least. I, I'm, I'm by no means fast and accurate in any other like respect. Yeah. <laughs> but at least, at least once I sit down and, and start writing. And there are days when it takes longer than that, or if I want to do something a bit more long form, there are days when I just don't feel like writing anything at all yeah. and i actually have the luxury to not have to do it but yeah when, when, once it starts it it happens pretty quickly man. You, and so uh, apologies if this is getting into the weeds a bit like what's your recall like because the, like the like the detail and the memories and those anecdotal things obviously the anecdotes come from your head but like do you do you go back to other bits of writing ever to kind of just refresh refresh your takes <laughs> no i don't go I, yes i mean like sometimes I, I have a pretty good edge memory like it used to be the case that if someone like someone was looking for for something they'd be like hey when did we publish this feature and i'll be like i don't know look around like uh, 290 something and it would be like 294 and everyone was like wow like if you've got like the whole edge archive in there it's like no it's just that i remember us doing that work and i remember i don't know who was on the team or like what was on the cover and where I'd gone for the cover or where we were sitting in the building or whatever, you know, like something that, that made me able to narrow it down a little bit. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It's just it's stuff just pops back into my head at the most inconvenient times, yeah. which is why I don't get enough sleep. <laughs> I think a, a key thing that 
maybe sets hit points apart, Nathan, is you can see the sort of a slight magcraft element to it in terms of like the the titles of each of each newsletter are like edge titles as opposed to SEO headlines. And so yeah, so many sets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so many um op eds I think are just kind of weighed down by their own headlines and end up saying nothing insightful as a result because they've already put their conclusion in the headline, whereas I think just by the by the nature of how you do it, your point unravels and and kind of develops as it goes, and it makes for a very satisfying reading experience. Mm. So that I think is what doesn't exist at the moment in the same form because everyone has to say what they mean in their headlines. So yeah, hey, that's just my I, take. But yeah, I know it's, it's like I mean it's lovely to hear, but and that's like fully intentional actually as well. So it's even more it's validating as well. I actually had an email like a, few, a couple of months ago. Someone a paid subscriber who um, who cancelled and he emailed me. And he was just like, look, some feedback, you know, like listen to it or, or don't. Like no 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 harm no no hard feelings kind of thing. But he like made a bunch of suggestions that were just, could you please turn this back into literally every other thing that's on the internet? Like it's it was kind of like your headlines aren't descriptive enough, so I don't know what I'm reading. Uh, if you could put a few like keywords in there, your paragraphs are too long. Uh, yeah. I get confused. Your sentences are too long. It's like I know it's fucking awesome, isn't it? <laughs> like but he was kind of listing them as as reasons that he didn't like it, and it was like, like that in itself was validating, to be honest. Um, you know. <laughs> fair play that like i don't expect this to be for everyone but that mm. was really sort of useful to to kind of contextualize there is there is a reason i do this there is a reason i'm not seoing like my headlines i mean i fucking number them man in the headlines you know like that's pretty bad for seo i'm told <laughs> but but i but i stick issue numbers in there because when people stumble across it and they see issue 138 or whatever i want them to think oh my god there's 137 more of these like that's cool mm. i should subscribe and i can sign up and read them it's the same with you know it's a, a, a lineage there a longevity same as edge yeah for sure so what are the challenges of making a paid tier, trying to fund it and trying to figure out what the paid content looks like, essentially, because we've been through this ourselves with the Patreon. And uh, it's, yeah, it's hard to get the balance right without creating too much work for yourself. Yeah, man, for sure. There's a real like head and heart thing at play. Like, you know, the the unemotional decision is just like, well, put most of what you do already behind the paywall. And, and, and a lot of like sub stacks that go paid do that. They just like excise. Okay, currently you get two a week. You're now only going to get one a week, and you you know you're going to have to pay. Uh, or they start sending uh, like you can. There's a feature in Substack to like like insert a paywall break, so you kind of send to everybody like the first two or three paragraphs or whatever, and then just like to read the rest, seven day free trial, and you know st right. stuff like that. It just I'm sure would lead to more paid subscriptions but it's just not it's just not what i want to do it just doesn't make doesn't make me feel good uh, i want people to pay because they want to support it rather than because they're going to because i'm going to take something away from them if they don't mm. and and increasingly i'd like people to pay because they want to support it rather than uh, because i'm going to do extra stuff for them because that's been really 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 hard to do mm. um when you know, it's it's not a great revenue driver. Like it, it you know, it's it's a, it's pocket money really, which is super nice and super lovely to have. But it's it's never going to be a living, uh, or it's not a living at the moment. And, mm. I mean, it certainly could be one day. Uh, but it, it the time that I have that I have to take out to sort out, you know, the, the interviews that I do for um, Max HP, which is the excellent name for the paid side of um, of hit points, are so long. 
like you know we're looking at like two two three hour interviews the last one i did was like two two hour interviews over the like two weeks apart and then the piece was like eight and a half thousand words which i think is the longest thing i've ever written as a game journalist and it's like i can't i can't do that every month (laughs) because the amount of time that i spend doing that i could do a consultancy project that you know covers my half of the bills for the month yeah uh so so it's really difficult and i'm still figuring it out as i go along but i'm being i'm trying to make sure as far as possible that i'm led by the like my emotional approach to this uh than my intellectual one i guess which is that i like doing this work other people seem to like it uh and like reading it and some people a proportion of those people uh will pay to support it and Mm over time if the number of overall people that are reading it grows then it makes sense that over time the number of people paying to support it will grow in kind or at least proportionately Mm. um and eventually maybe it becomes you know something else and every so often i'll do some ludicrous profile of uh one of my friends from the game industry whose story has not been properly told or not told widely enough they're great fun as well but yeah yeah like (laughs) the answer is uh the challenges of making a paid tier are quite quite extreme but um the i've set things up such that i'm not dependent on it because Mm. i think to to just jump off a cliff in that way would be pretty suicidal right yeah oh for sure i mean we're in the same boat really like we couldn't live off of the patreon but we're extremely grateful for the support we get it allows us to pay who people we have on and like you said we were saying it's a thing you own it's a thing you can grow like who knows maybe five years down the line maybe it is a more meaningful part of your income you know so absolutely yeah um yeah lots of uh, admiration for what you're doing there but um do you have a particular uh, focus you prefer writing about on there it seems like you're very tuned into the industry side of things i was i was curious if you because i know you wrote about wrote some street fire impressions recently right um yeah do, do you find writing about the industry more or less enjoyable than writing about uh, writing impressions about a game uh i think my favorite stuff is the industry stuff but there is like some pretty important caveats to that so like when the when the activision blizzard stuff broke and the, and, the, and all the ubisoft stuff was swelling around i was just so miserable like just okay i have to sit down and write about uh sexual misconduct again fucking hell i mean i'm not saying it's you know yeah <laughs> the, my, my cross was the the heaviest to bear in that in that situation by any stretch but like it was it was just miserable and there are like lots of things like there's the consolidation and acquisitions and stuff were fun to write about for a while but then after you know after a while you're just repeating yourself you know it's just like that here here is why this is potentially problematic and you know worrying for industry trends and stuff but when like something uh really juicy comes i mean the uh the, when the, the activision blizzard uh, acquisition acquisition blizzard uh, was announced in in january i wasn't going to do a newsletter that day because nothing had happened or i was feeling ill or something i can't remember what it was but i was like nope not happening today not going to do it and then that broke like while i was walking to uh school to get um pick up my eldest so it's like three o'clock i was like right i got two hours to write about this fucking industry shaking god knows what that's just happened that i haven't even had time to think about yet like okay and i wrote that thing in 45 minutes and it's like one of my favorite things that i've written because it's like wow i, w- I was kind of right <laughs> with, a, with a lot of that stuff I, I, I sussed that out like really quickly that is definitely my favorite but and there will never not be a part of me that just loves like playing a game and talking about it especially if i can find a hit pointsy way to talk about it like uh the only bit of review code that i've got so far is uh gran turismo 7 
um, because I'd written all this stuff about Forza Horizon Five being like a really bad dad game, right. uh, and I saw and I saw in I like did a really nice like pitch email to um, to Sony and I was quite proud of like I, I have I have like two thousand readers but here's why you need to give me a copy of Gran Turismo Seven, <laughs> um, and uh, because it actually looks like a, a you know a very capable dad game like it's the anyway yeah that was that was a good time. Huh. Um, but you know it's something that i think i can add a perspective to uh street fighter 6 like absolutely i can and capcom were kind enough to like let me go up and, and press buttons for for an hour or two one afternoon and like power simulator which is just like you know okay i guess i'll play this for an hour i actually i didn't intend to play that in order to write about it but it just sent me on a fairly like weird um sort of existential trajectory uh that i felt was worth writing about mm. um but yes Short answer, I prefer the industry stuff, but it's all a balance, isn't it, Samuel? It's all a balance. I was escape, what do you find people react like most to when you write you know, are there particular themes, topics, areas that seem to, to get a good reaction out of your readership? No, not really. I mean, I think like stuff that in terms of stuff that actually like got shared and spread a little bit, some of the bits I did on around Elden Ring uh did pretty well. There's sort of a discoursey themed one and then something about balance that uh, game balance that had been set off. And I think that was just in the time when everybody was thinking and talking about um about Elden Ring a lot, so that they kind of did well. But what I found really nice is is that people just seem to like stuff. Like it doesn't matter. It's like the, the most important thing is that hit points by Nathan Brown appears in their inbox and gives them a, a pleasant six minutes, you know, right. uh, when when they're on the train or, or waiting for the kettle to boil or, or whatever. And it kind of, I'm not going to I'm not trying to like do that. Donald Trump, I could, I could, you know, walk into Fifth Avenue and start shooting or whatever it was, <laughs> Times Square and start shooting people. But, you know, um, pe- people seem, people seem to like the thing yeah. uh, more than, more than they like any particular aspect of it, which is like yeah. super comforting. Yeah, I think we find the same with the podcast, actually. You know, like a common thing is I wasn't interested, you know, I didn't think I would be interested in that one, but I listened and it, you know, I really liked it or I I don't care about that game series, but I still liked it. And those are those are big, big wins um, for morale. So aside from hit points, Nathan, you're a a full time video game consultant. And I was curious to ask you about this because I think just from my kind of brief uh, sort of like interactions with people who who do this side of do this uh, this kind of work and um, the idea of working with a developer to improve their game so I was, I was curious what that's like because i found that in people who have written mock reviews or done consultancy work that they become invested in the product in a way that might seem foreign to someone who's used to working in games media so what is consulting essentially and what what how do you are you validated by doing that kind of work Oh, like hugely more than I thought I would be actually um so the the very simple way of explaining what it is is that I'm reviewing a game but I'm reviewing it for the people that are making it uh while they still have time to make changes and 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 take on feedback so the audience that you're writing for is naturally a little bit different but you're and and you're not like your ultimate goal is not like should someone is this a good game and should people buy it it's what areas should the developers be looking at in the final six months or nine months or year or however long it is to make it better than it is if they were going to release it today so yeah it's it's a, it's a review for a different audience effectively yeah and in terms of like is it validating i was a bit worried when i when i started doing it because most of the the sort of stuff that i'd heard about was like 
mock reviews that were mostly being commissioned by the PR reps at large publishers and the games were finished and were coming out in a matter of weeks and it was more about them wanting to be able to set expectations internally mm. um Sam I'm sure I'm sure Sam can uh, you know understands this well from from like the sort of PR capacity but like everybody thinks that the game they're making is brilliant and and it's often very useful to be able to manage expectations before the reviews hit um of of what people are actually gonna gonna think of it that's what i thought like a lot of the job was but actually what i'm finding is that while they call them mock we need a mock review done it's very often a lot earlier in development uh it's you know stuff that is months away uh and and there is time for your feedback to be taken on board uh and i've you know i've seen stuff that i've suggested like done and oh like really nothing yeah like and it, and in some pretty big games as well like you know and that's really really validating um i've i've got some i've got like i think four or five games delayed which is probably not as good maybe one or two cancelled and there was even something uh, that came out very recently which I, I shan't name but they had they i think it was like i sent the review through on the monday and on the friday they'd sent back another build with a load of the changes that they'd made in response to it and asking me if i could have another look at it and i was like well do you, i mean i can only do like a couple of hours do you want me to play through it again and they're like oh no we can't it's out in like three weeks I'm like what the fuck like yeah. you know you cut your wow um yeah. making changes like kind of that that late in the day based on based on feedbacks like i must have you know it's clearly a useful process right for them uh, as much as it is for me but yeah it's 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 fascinating honestly i've always can sort of thought that edge was a bit closer to developers than most of the rest of the gaming media i guess in a way like kind of you know we, we rooted for developers we went to bat for them I, I always felt a certain kinship on press trips and stuff like that mm. with with people who make games so just being able to get closer to that um and and yeah it's 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 really nice it's really cool i wouldn't i tell you though like it is absolutely reinforced that i never want to make one of these things because <laughs> they for the longest time they are terrible terrible yeah. <laughs> i've done a little bit of mock reviewing myself the last couple of years and you know when i when i lost my job on rps i thought oh maybe this is a sphere i could kind of push into and um haven't done a particularly good job with it but i've had a couple of bits and bobs and it's it's super odd going from writing for the public about these things to writing just for the like the one person who that review like would really like upset or hurt or or <laughs> reinforce perhaps mm. and i found that quite a strange thing because you are you know i often used to think when i was writing my mag reviews i wonder if the devs ever read this and here it's like only the devs will read this and it's just you and them and at that like i uh, you know i still find that an, an odd thing to kind of get my head around it is kind of like that but I, I i don't know man i think like they're actually pretty receptive to and and, and completely understand it as well and as long as you you change you naturally have to change the approach change the way that you write so it's mm. like do away with the with the jokes about explosive barrels and instead like make you know focus your efforts on like just really really laser astute feedback that that really like isolates the core of an issue um in a way that is quite hard to kind of argue with i think mm. um and and generally speaking there's been a couple of times I, I agree like when i was starting out uh when i would send something off and you know i'd project like a an edge score a meta score of like you know 
six and mid 60s respectively or something like that and not heard anything for like a week and a half and it's like right they hate me there goes that <laughs> yeah. client I've, up, I've upset them i've rattled the cage and then they come back and they're like oh sorry it's been really busy thank you so much for that it's incredible like incredibly useful feedback we'll use you again in future and then they're back like you know a, a month later to, mm. to ask me to run the rule over something else um so yeah like i don't know you've always got to be pre- prepared to upset people but understand that you're probably never going to yeah 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 i think that what is interesting is if people ever saw ever got a glimpse behind the curtain of this they would understand the like absurd extent to which developers are committed to making the game as good as it can possibly be and i think once you've kind of seen the human side of that and really understand that it does change your perspective a little bit on games development in a way where I don't think you can quite go back from maybe what your preconceptions were. I don't know if you agree with that, Nathan, but that's oh, sort of how I found it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, there's just there's like little things that I'll take for Like, I will never again take the piss out of a bug in an open world game because I know what open world games look like 18 months before they come out. Right. Like, it's, it, is a, it is a miracle that those things even... I mean, maybe maybe not Cyberpunk, but, like, it is a miracle that, that these things ever ever get stable enough to ship, like, you know, just debug skipping everywhere because nothing works and falling through the scenery and, oh, my God. Like, yeah, like, it's it's wild. And I think, yeah, once, you, once you've seen that sort of element of it and, and understand that, like you say, Sam, no one is... No one ever sets out to make bad game right <laughs> like um but it's just about helping them get get to make the best possible v- uh, version of that with the the with the time and the money that they've got left basically mm. okay well that's great nathan thanks for um thank you for detailing all that so where can people go and find hit points and uh, support you support your work if they want to my god we should probably have done this at the beginning shouldn't we uh, so... oh we did we mentioned it at the beginning too <laughs> oh i did actually that's true yeah. so uh right <laughs> like you didn't trust out. us to, to cover yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> no, of course i of course i trusted you uh so yes uh you can find me at hitpoints.substack.com uh and it kind of looks when you sign up i really don't like the sign up flow on that because it looks like you've kind of got a commit before it'll let there's a little like let, let me read it first button that's easy to miss but you can do that just pop your email address in totally free pay it if you like whatever um i'm on twitter somewhere at nathan underscore brown um but mostly mostly go to hit points if you if you don't already I, there's a there is enough of a crossover i think between um uh back page and oh, uh and hit sure. points, which is lovely to hear can i go before we go can i just shout out uh michael grant who is my accountant and is a big fan of the back page oh uh, cool. <laughs> yeah yeah he's uh, i've seen uh i've seen michael uh around on the uh the social media before so um yeah, that's uh, that's a nice connection. That's uh, that's cool. Yeah. Hello, Michael. Um, I'm, I'm, assuming that's, I'm assuming that's blown your mind hearing uh, the host talk please, to you while listening to the podcast. Um, please give me a discount, and I'm sorry that I'm late with all of my filing. <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a good place to do that. Yeah, have that conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this podcast is supported by Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod if you'd like two additional podcasts from us a month. Um, there's also a one pound tier if you'd just like to say thank you for the uh, the, the work that we do here. Um, Nathan, thanks so much. It's been a, a phenomenal episode. Um, Matthew, is there anything you want to plug? Mr. Basil underscore pesto, etc. Yeah, I mean, follow me on Twitter. I was complaining about kitchen utensils today, so that's that's a sign of how dire that is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> kitchen, good, good kitchen chat. Let's stay on, let's, you know, once we've stopped recording, let's stay on and talk about kitchens. That's <laughs> a 
real topic of conversation for me at the moment okay great well the uh, you can follow the podcast the back page pod on twitter there is also uh, links to our discord there as well if you'd like to join that community and that's us done thanks so much for your time nathan and uh, see no you worries later. thank you for having me cheers bye-bye bye-bye